all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Hope everybody's having a wonderful morning so far. A little bit of a hint in uh, our summer weather pattern here, a hint of fall at least. Um, You know, I don't know about you, but um, I was reading uh, an article about, I don't know if anybody's following the heat wave that they're having out west right now, particularly around the Death Valley area, and they've had record highs. And when I say record highs, I mean extremely hot around 130 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so it's, it's really hot out there. But it's interesting, they were interviewing some of the people who live in the surrounding area, and most of them just stay out of, you know, outside, stay out of the outside, stay inside uh, for uh, most of the summer. Of course, they get great winters. Uh, but they were saying that when it gets below 80 degrees, it actually feels a little chilly uh, because of how they've been acclimatized to it. It made me think of living in the South all my life. And, uh, you know, if you've in that middle summer pattern, late summer pattern around August, when the temperature drops a little bit, even five degrees, man, that can be so much more tolerable. And when you combine that with the humidity drops that we've been getting for the middle portion of the day, actually feels really nice outside. I've been able to walk uh, between buildings here on campus at uh, University of Mississippi Medical Center's campus from time to time, in, back and forth between clinic or meetings. I uh, actually did that this morning, and it really feels nice. So I hope you're experiencing that. Uh, hey, Dr. Jimmy, can like... I jump in for a minute? Yeah, go ahead, Kevin. 130 degrees, how long can people be outside in that, and what sort of health risks does those extreme temperatures cause? Yeah, you don't need to be outside long. So um, what what is, you know, if you're traveling to somewhere like that, you really need to take it seriously. There will be warning signs in Death Valley everywhere, particularly during the summer months that talk about that. It's so hot that you actually do not feel yourself sweating because the sweat is, your clothes may be wet because it may be, they may be retaining, retaining the moisture but you're not going to feel like you have sweat dripping off of you because it's so hot it evaporates so fast. So you lose a lot of moisture really, really quick. Uh, when I say quick, usually 15 minutes uh, may be enough time to really start to, uh, to overheat. It's not something to be taken lightly. Um, and you need to uh, get indoors, uh, particularly during uh, some of the more uh, you know, exposed times of the day. So middle of the day. And, uh, you know, even at night, the article that I was reading said that uh, right now at seven o'clock in the morning, the temperature is 100 degrees. So it's still really, really hot. So even though you don't feel like it, you need to plan accordingly. Certainly, you can extrapolate that here as well. You know, we're getting up into the 90s 
um, and with uh, higher humidity levels, particularly at the ends of the day or the beginnings of the day. So you want to plan your, your uh, activities outside in those time periods when the temperature is a little bit less. And uh, most people stay indoors. Uh, in, you know, if the temperature outside is 130, that's not something that you can comfortably uh, or safely do anything during those times. So that's what most people do out there. Um, lots of time for your questions this morning. Uh, we have, uh, if you, you're tuning in for the first time, this is actually a program where we take your calls, any calls related to the health care of yourself or others. It could be questions about medications or new diagnoses. It could be all kinds of different questions. And uh, we have different Southern Remedy programs, different times of the week. On Wednesday, we really open it up to you. So you get to dictate sort of what we talk about. Uh, we try to answer those questions right uh, here and now. Sometimes we'll point you in the direction of somebody that you need to go as far as follow up. But the number to call if you have a question this morning is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or if you're not able to call, you can email us at remedy at mpbonline.org. Do want to encourage people, as always, to call in early. Uh, we like to give people enough time to uh, maybe your question is a little bit more complex or a little bit longer. If you wait to the latter half of the hour, or the last 15 minutes of the program, usually we've got a couple of callers that we're trying to, to fit into that. And you may not get um, you may not uh, have as many uh, as much time as you need to uh, as to address those. So go ahead and call. Don't think uh, that. The other thing is I, I hear sometimes in emails when people who listen in to Southern Remedy who uh, catch me during the week and they'll say, you know, I really had a couple of questions to ask or one question to ask, but I really didn't want to call in. I really felt like it wasn't applicable to, you know, everybody else. And I totally understand that. But I guarantee you, if it's a question that you have, at least somebody else who is listening to us has probably got a similar issue. I can't tell you how many times on the program that one person has called in. And they say, you know, you may have not heard this before. Or you may not. This may be sort of silly. And then we immediately have two or three other people who call in right after that. So don't think that your question or your problem is something that's isolated. I guarantee you that a lot of other people, it's going to benefit them to answer those questions on the air. So the number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Well, of course, COVID is all over the news, and certainly it looks like it's hard to extrapolate this data, but we certainly have had a trend here in Mississippi of a little bit lower numbers over the last week or so. Uh, we would hope that that is due to, uh, to measures that the governor and others have put into place, businesses, of course, uh, particularly with masks and social distancing, those things are powerful. We have more and more evidence now through studies looking at this, not just here in the United States, but around the world, that these things work if you do them consistently. It's a little bit of freedom that you give up wearing those masks to gain a lot of freedom. So um, you do need to, uh, to do that. I would uh, encourage everybody out there to do that, uh, particularly as we have you know, uh, kids going back to school, certainly uh, all the uh, young adults going to college. That's really important to do this time of year. All right, so let's go to our first caller, who is Alice in Macomb. Good morning, Alice. Good morning. It might be my last time, time calling about this. Uh, you say I don't have diabetes. I got the other one. So I'm calling about the seed part. 
Okay, oh. like seeds, like eating seeds? Yeah, so I want to find out about okra and boa peanut. So they kind of soft. I'd be able to eat the okra and the boa peanut. Yeah, so that's a good question, Allison. You mentioned there's two there's two words there that describe that, uh, you know, diverticulitis and diverticulosis. And let me explain that to uh, right. You probably know what it is. Let me explain it to everybody else who's listening. Diverticulosis is a condition where in your colon, the large intestine part of your gastrointestinal tract, uh, there are little blind pockets in there. So it's almost like a dead end. If you think of the inside of the colon like a highway and you have these little dead end streets that come off of it, uh, and those pockets can catch food particles in them. And uh, constipation, particularly if it's chronic in nature and occurs over years and years and years, that's one of the things that can contribute to this, uh, not eating enough fiber early on. And basically what happens is you can have those little food particles that get caught in there. Diverticulitis is when those little pieces of food that get caught in those pockets and don't move through the GI tract, through the large intestine like they should, they get inflamed and infected. As we all know, we have bacteria in our stools and that's helpful for us. It helps us to break down a lot of food particles. It helps us to actually absorb some needed uh, vitamins like vitamin K. Um, but if you have diverticulosis and it gets infected and inflamed, that becomes diverticulitis. And once you get to the itis part of it, you have to treat that with antibiotics because that can become a serious infection. You actually can die of that if it's not treated appropriately. Now, diverticulosis, Alice, I believe that that's, that's what you're asking about. A lot of the things that are advocated that you eat and don't eat, you know, you'll hear people all the time say you're not supposed to eat seeds or nuts. And the reason is, the theory at least, is that it gets caught in those little pockets. Now, there's been research on this and you know, it's sort of hard to say whether it actually improves or not. It's really on a case-by-case basis with individual people. You'll still see some GI doctors that will, will say, don't eat nuts, don't eat, you know, seeds, those kinds of things. In your particular case, boiled peanuts, I think you're safe there just because um, the boiled peanuts are going to be soft enough, as you mentioned, to not catch in there. Now, there's a caveat with that. If you eat the bowl of peanuts and they cause you problems, you're going to have to sort of lay those aside. But you're going to know you're going to have pain uh, usually in the left side of your abdomen, uh, of your belly, uh, that's crampy in nature, really painful. That's going to be, you know, sort of your warning sign. Okra is also probably okay. However, most seeds that enter that we eat, even if they're seeds of a soft fruit or a soft vegetable like okra, if you're boiling that okra, you know, it's really, really soft. But those seeds may pass all the way through your GI tract intact. And they're small enough where they could get caught in those little out pockets, uh, those little dead ends of the diverticulosis. So I think you're probably safe with both of those. What you may want to do is just eat a little bit and see if that causes you some problems. If it does, then you can just leave that, that type of food, unfortunately, alone. Now, the definitive, if you're having a lot of problems, particularly with the diverticulitis, 
and having multiple episodes where you have to have uh, antibiotics, then they may recommend that you have surgery to take out that portion of your colon. Uh, so that is sort of the last resort if you're having a lot of problems. But really, I would keep a food diary and the foods that cause you problems, try to avoid those and other foods are probably okay. Oh, yeah, that's what I do, because I'm doing all right. I need to ask about the boiled peanuts and the oak, because I'm leaving all that other stuff alone, because I want to live longer. There you go. It sounds like you got a good plan there, Allison. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. Join us as we explore issues that relate to you and your family, from mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life disruptions. Whatever the issue, let's try to figure it out together. You can listen live Tuesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions about your health or somebody else's health near and dear to you. You can reach us this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 Got an email here, and I always appreciate emails uh, to the program. You can reach us at remedy at mpbonline.org. Uh, This is uh, from a grandparent that says, I have a 14-year-old granddaughter that she is concerned about who might or might uh, have be developing a thyroid problem. Her primary doctor has said that her thyroid levels are high, normal, and her mom's gynecologist has said that the doctors won't treat her thyroid at her age, even with a family history of thyroid, thyroid problems, because her hormones are not stable at this stage of development. Her mother suffers greatly from thyroid problems. So the question is, should we ask her primary doctor to refer her to a pediatric endocrinologist now and try to get in front of any potential issues? This summer, she's gained about 15 pounds and her face and fingers look bloated and she is concerned. So uh, thank you for sending this in. This is a great question. Uh, the thyroid is a is a gland, so it's an organ that is in the front of our neck that sort of controls our metabolism. So it controls um, all of the different processes of our body. If you get uh, the body monitors that through feedback in the brain, so there there's a hormone that the brain produces that tells the thyroid to produce thyroid hormone. And if you need more of it, particularly during times that you're growing, or that you have increased metabolic needs, it adjusts that when it's functioning normally. 
So there's two different things that can go wrong with that glam uh, as far as, well, there's lots of things that can go wrong with it, but basically two big buckets of it. One is you produce too much hormone. And usually this causes problems like fast heart rate, excess sweating, weight loss. Uh, you can have a tremor with it. There can be some other manifestations, uh, particularly with an autoimmune form of this. And then the opposite would be not getting enough of the hormone. So sometimes that gland doesn't produce enough hormone uh, because it's damaged, again, through an autoimmune process or uh, some other injury to it. So this can be a little bit hard to uh, tease out because there's so many different things that those thyroid hormones affect. But if you have enough symptoms, it's an easy test to get. Uh, so there are usually two different blood tests that they look at. They can draw a blood sample and test for these two different things. And one is called a TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone. The TSH is produced in the brain in, a, in another little gland called the pituitary gland. And it's the one that tells the thyroid what to do. And then the other one would be uh, a free T4, which is sort of the end product uh, that uh, is the actual hormone that the body produces to control the metabolism. So depending on what those numbers are, a physician may say, well, okay, you're not producing enough or you're producing too much uh, thyroid hormone. And then you really need to know the reasons why, because the treatment for those is pretty different depending on what is going on. So weight gain is a common thing that physicians will test for, uh, particularly in adolescence. Now, it is true that, you know, there's, there are a lot of changes in those levels, and you can't use the normal um, adult levels of those hormones to determine whether or not the person's uh, adolescent is getting enough or getting too much. Um, in this case, I think uh, that our caller is right. I think a pediatric endocrinologist is fine to see. Now, I would say, you know, if, if somebody has said uh, because hormones aren't stable during adolescence, it's not exactly true. They are stable. They don't fluctuate wildly, uh, but they do correlate to certain ranges. And sometimes those ranges aren't reported on uh, adult type labs if, if, that they're not used to. Uh, so you really need somebody, either a pediatrician uh, or somebody who is a pediatric endocrinologist, which is a specialist in, uh, in thyroid and other endocrine organs. Uh, to really look at this. It would be real simple. Uh, now, the other thing about this is sometimes as these thyroid problems are developing over time, it can be really hard. Uh, you're not, you may not get a diagnosis right off the bat. It may take several weeks, sometimes several months to get an accurate diagnosis because it sort of has to play out before you can make a diagnosis. If, um, if it's a decrease in hormones, fairly easy to so that's a replacement hormone. It does need to be monitored by a physician with blood levels about every uh, six to eight weeks, or if it's stable, uh, once it gets stable, maybe six to 12 months. So I think it's probably warranted at this point, if you have a little bit of problems and if it's sort of in the high normal range, to ask your physician to go ahead and uh, send you to a pediatric endocrinologist uh, so you can get a little bit more expertise there. Um, Thyroid is a wonderfully complex gland, and it's really, really kind of neat the way it works. Uh, people who have hyper or hypothyroidism, sometimes they get frustrated because of all the back and forth and changes with hormone levels that they have to do sometimes. And 
that's just a part of it. It shows you how complex the body system is, and it's really hard to uh, predict uh, what somebody's going to need in the future without just sort of following those and, and, of course, following for symptoms. So get to the people who are experts on that, and that's the endocrinologist. Uh, this is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy with this morning, uh, answering your questions, calls, and emails that you might have about any kind of health problem that you're concerned about. Um, the number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 7464 So uh, it's interesting, if you look at the top 10 medical diagnoses in, in primary care, uh, you know, what are the top 10 things that people come to the doctor? And this is basically, this data comes on the, uh, in, from the medical records of these patients. So when we look at this nationwide, it's very interesting to see what are the common things that are out there. Not too surprising, the number one thing is hypertension. So hypertension uh, affects about 45% or about almost 110 million people in the United States. May seem like a large number. If you'll remember several years ago that the definition of hypertension was changed a little bit because of our understanding about how much blood pressure affects cardiovascular and stroke risk. So if you look at blood pressures starting at about a blood pressure of 115 over 75, increases from those two numbers as you, as you get higher do have some increased risk for stroke and heart attack. So even if a person has a blood pressure of 130 over 80, we realize now that that's not a benign blood pressure. That's something that could some risk over a lifetime or at least 10 to 20 years and do some damage to the heart, to the uh, brain, uh, to lots of organs in your body. So um, of those 40, uh, of those 110 million or so with hypertension, and that's a blood pressure, anything that's equal to or over 130 on that top number, the systolic and over 80 on the, that's the bottom number on the diastolic. Um, of that number of people, only about one in four are under control. So it's something that uh, is very hard to get people under control. Uh, actually, it's easy to get them under control for the, for the majority of people, uh, but there's a lot of resistance to that. One of the, the things that we see a lot is, you know, hypertension is called the silent killer because you can have zero symptoms and have an elevated blood pressure and it can still be doing some damage. And hypertension, uh, we know, is a major risk factor for stroke and heart disease. So controlling it, even if it's at a young age, can certainly help to reduce our, ri reduce our risk of heart attack and stroke. So something to think about. Get checked out. If you're an adult, or even if you're a child, your pediatrician should be looking at these kinds of things on a year-to-year <clears throat> -year basis to do some screenings for high blood pressure. But certainly, you don't need to ignore it if it's elevated. You need to jump on it. There are some things that you can do, certainly with changing your diet, physical activity, modifiable risk factors like smoking, trying to stop uh, smoking and uh, uh, excess alcohol if you're drinking. Uh, those are all some things that you can modify. So that's one of the top 10 uh, diagnoses that people present to their physicians. Another one is cholesterol. It's actually two in the top 10 that were in cholesterol. One was uh, the most common one, which is sort of a a uh, common uh, mixed dyslipidemia. You know, cholesterol is made up of a couple of different numbers, a couple of different um, types of cholesterol. So usually if you get a uh, lipid panel or a cholesterol panel, 
going to have a couple of different numbers on there. It's going to have a total cholesterol, and then it's going to have a triglyceride level, an HDL or high-density lipoprotein, a, an LDL, a low-density lipoprotein. So usually those, those are the four things. There's some other components that you can get if you're seeing an endocrinologist or somebody who is uh, a little bit more of an expert in this area. They may get some others. But the main one that is the most uh, is the most is the focus of the risk of having heart disease and stroke is that LDL number. And generally speaking, it, it really you have to determine the total risk of having a heart attack or stroke. And there's a way to do that if you plug in your age, your sex, your uh, ethnicity, uh, other risk factors in there. If you smoke, if you're being treated for hypertension, lots of other things that go into the equation. If your risk is high enough, we would, uh, you know, we would treat you with a um, with a, uh, a, a medication that would uh, lower that cholesterol. But really, what we're looking for is to lower your risk of heart disease and stroke. So, high cholesterol is another one that you can certainly have zero symptoms with that. It's also something that most of our wellness exams address on a year-to-year basis. That uh, you know, people can get that drawn and then calculate the risk and see if, if a cholesterol agent is something that you need to be taking. All right, let's go to V in Waynesboro. Good morning, V. Thank you for calling. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. I can hear you loud and clear. <laughs> yes. My question is, would you speak on thyroid uh, conditions in males? I know some that have the mother and the sister with the thyroid uh, diagnosis uh, and the males, um, we don't know much about it. Um, sometimes they can be a little uncooperative and they don't want to test, but <laughs> they could, could they be affected? Yeah. So that's, and it's the reason I think some people think males can't be affected by thyroid conditions is because it is a lot more common in females and in, uh, in families too. So uh, it's not something that you necessarily pass down, but it is something that because another family member has, you're at risk for developing that. But males are not immune from that. I have many patients that have thyroid problems, hypothyroid or hyperthyroidism from various causes. And uh, a lot of them have a strong family history. So the same symptoms, uh, usually the symptoms are really similar that uh, female patients with thyroid problems would have same kind of symptoms that males would have. So just because they're male doesn't mean they're immune. I'm a male, so I can say this, that sometimes we are hard-headed, V. I, I agree with that. And sometimes we, we aren't forthcoming with a lot of symptoms that we're having. Uh, but that's something that definitely they need to talk to their physician about. And again, it's an easy test to get. It's a blood test. Um, that if they have enough symptoms to support, you know, getting a blood test, it's pretty easy to get. But yeah, males certainly can get thyroid problems just like females can. And the test would be the TH, T, the TSH. So yeah, right. So the TS and there's and really that doesn't tell the whole story, but the TSH is the one that's going to change first if there is a problem. So a lot of labs would have what's called a reflexive or RTSH, and that just means if the TSH is out of whack, if it's too low or too high outside the normal range, 
the, the testing equipment would automatically test for those other hormones that the thyroid gland makes. But if the TSH is in the normal range, it won't necessarily check for that. So yeah, it's a TSH and free T4 are the two that are the most important. There's a couple of others that if you go to an endocrinologist, they may want to get those two in other situations. But really, you start with the TSH and then the next thing that you should get is a free T4. And this is at the primary doctor. Right. They can all those tests, usually they can they can test those right there in the office. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hey, this is Malcolm White. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Every week we talk with visual artists, musicians, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcast app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you live right now, answering your questions about any kind of health concerns that you might have. Hey, it, Here's a quick uh, tip for you. If you miss part of the show or maybe you come in on a question that you really felt like would speak to you and some good information, you can always go to our website and then listen to the archive programs there. If you go to uh, mpbonline.org and then search for Southern Remedy, and usually it takes about a day for us to get those, get those up, so uh, give us a little bit of time, but uh, that way you can go back and listen to uh, previous programs if you didn't weren't able to catch all of them. Uh, we do appreciate everybody listening to the program and certainly especially those who call in or email us. Uh, you are who uh, makes this program great because you de- develop those questions based on the real things that you're going through. And uh, it's always good to talk about those on the program and share those with our audience. All right. We're going to go to Sue from Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. I'd like to ask you a question about sodium in the diet. Uh, several years ago, I had read or heard on television about this researcher who said that sodium doesn't play that much of a factor in hypertension, but I always was taught that it was. And so I started buying this dash, you know, with no sodium in it, and it tastes good. But what, what, how much how much does sodium consumption play in part of hypertension? So, yeah, that's a great question, Sue, and that's one that I've been in, involved with over uh, the course of my, of my career. So it's, you know, it does have a role. If you look at, uh, there's a couple of different ways to look at this. If you look at it from a population standpoint, in other words, if we're looking at a big population of people, those populations who have more sodium consumption, they're eating more salt, uh, they have a lot more hypertension than uh, when compared to other populations uh, who don't have salt, you know, sort of the traditional ones. There's still a lot of sort of hunter-gatherer societies in, uh, in uh, 
in certain places in the world. Not too many of them left that had very low salt consumptions and have almost no uh, hypertension. So, and there's a lot of other things that go into that, you know, uh, in what you eat and those kinds of things. But if you look at most of the literature in looking at large societies, large populations of people, uh, salt consumption can increase blood pressure about five to seven points. May not sound like a lot, but that's a lot when you're talking about a lot of people. If you raise that up, that's a pretty big burden of disease for that population. Now, if we get down to individuals, there are some fancy ways that you can test individuals to see if they're salt sensitive. In other words, if they eat more salt than they need, then their blood pressure is sensitive to that and can go up uh, or non-salt sensitive people. You know, there's some people who eat a ton of salt and it doesn't seem like it even puts a budge in their blood pressure. They're not on blood pressure medication. Uh, you know, it's just sort of, it's individualized. And that probably has to do with the way that our body metabolizes, uses salt, gets rid of excess salt. Uh, you don't need a whole lot of salt. You know, salt was, is certainly over time, it's been very useful for lots of different things. Uh, now, you know, uh, notwithstanding flavor, uh, it was a, a delivery method for iodine in a lot of uh, developing societies too. It was easy to put that in the salt as iodinized salt. Uh, particularly, you know, we were talking about thyroid conditions earlier. A lot of places weren't getting enough iodine in their diet. But generally speaking here in America, we eat way too much salt, way too much salt in Mississippi as a people. The population strategy for decreasing high blood pressure in the state and in the nation is to decrease our salt intake. So for most of us, we eat way too much of it. There's other things that can flavor our foods that are just as well uh, and, and much better for us and, and can still have some taste there. Uh, you mentioned Mrs. Dash, which has sort of a potassium uh, component in it. It still gives you that sort of salty taste, but it doesn't have the sodium in it. Uh, so, you know, you can, you can get down to the nitty gritty, but most people aren't doing that because it costs a lot of money and insurance doesn't pay for that to determine it. It's just a whole lot easier to say, hey, cut back on your salt. And usually... You know, I have a lot of patients that, in fact, I saw a patient uh, this week that they said, you know what, I learned real quick that if I eat something that has a lot of salt in it, um, you know, if it's sausage or pizza or chips, those kinds of things, that my, my blood pressure goes up uh, the next day or the next couple of days. They may even notice some other effects like some extremity swelling in their hands or their feet after they do that. So generally speaking, we would advocate to decrease your salt intake. But uh, there are other things, Sue, that you can do. Uh, the DASH diet is very, very good. It's very well studied. Uh, it is a Mediterranean-type diet that's high in uh, lots of vegetables and fruits, not a whole lot of animal fats. Uh, the fats that you do get from it are usually from olive oil sources or nuts. And it is a very healthy diet for, from a hypertension standpoint also a healthy diet from a cardiovascular disease and stroke prevention standpoint. So it's not just one thing that you can do. You really need to do a lot of different things. Do you want to mention okay, this? Because this is another misconception. Uh, you know, a lot of people will say, well, I don't eat regular salt. I eat sea salt or I eat Himalayan salt. As far as a hypertension standpoint is concerned, salt is salt. So it has the same effect on blood pressure, no matter what source you're getting it from, because it's when you get down to it, it may have other things in it 
that give it those other qualities in its color and in its taste and some other things. But all of those have uh, sodium chloride as the main component and the sodium portion of it is really the part that affects our blood pressure. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Sue. Always a pleasure talking to you. Uh, this is Southern Remedy, Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Let's get back to our top 10 list of things that uh, patients come in to the doctor and uh, pick out a couple of more of those. You know, one of them that you wouldn't think of, but again, this is based on diagnoses that physicians, uh, you know, put into their, to the chart, uh, is a wellness exam. You know, some people may say, you know, I'm healthy. Uh, I don't have any problems. Why should I go in for a wellness exam? Well, it is uh, exactly to try to continue to have uh, a healthy lifestyle, a healthy um, overall health that doesn't impact you. There are some things that can sneak up on you, as we just mentioned, like early in the program, like blood pressure and cholesterol, that if you don't diagnose at an early, early point in the disease and wait, the longer you wait, the more damage is done even before you have symptoms. The other thing is there's lots of things that we're born with in our genetics, in our family history that uh, you really need to know about and anticipate. So a lot of health insurance programs now, uh, thankfully, are uh, will have uh, like uh, Blue Cross is one one example, but they'll give you one uh, for an adult, you know, once a year, a time that you can come in for your wellness exam. Medicare does this. Many other insurances do this. All of them differ a little bit in the labs that they get, but a lot of them uh, that uh, a lot of them. Um, um, uh, the labs may differ, but they're really looking at some of those risk factors like cholesterol and diabetes and a couple other things. So that's something that's important to do if you've been delaying it. Uh, it's certainly something that you need to check in with your doctor. Not going to take a whole, long period of time probably to get that done, uh, but it is something that you probably need to get. If you have other medical conditions and you're seeing your physician, it's not as big a deal as long as they're looking at those wellness type things to those preventable uh, things that they can uh, they can address. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions and calls about any kind of health care questions that you might have. Uh, thanks to everybody who's called so far. Thanks for everybody being patient on the phone lines where we go through the break. Let's go to Mikey from Mobile. Good morning, Mikey. Hey, good morning. I've got a salt question, please, sir. Sure. Uh, uh, 
in my, I do all the stuff that, that you you advise doing, um, diet, exercise, weight bearing, cardiovascular and stuff. I don't seem to have any problem with blood pressure. In fact, I seem to be getting healthier, and that's been very deliberate. I do drink a little too much coffee, but I cut out, cut uh, to non-caffeinated after a, the middle part of the day. Um, but uh, I also do a lot of outdoor work. I live without air conditioning. I do a lot of outdoor work um gardening type things um and i sweat a lot uh and i drink a lot of water a whole lot of water um i was wondering is it okay to eat more salt if if you live like that yeah you do need a lot uh, you know a little bit and i think that the key to that is if you don't have a lot of other medical problems and you don't have hypertension you, you are going to lose a little bit of electrolytes, uh, you know, when you sweat like that. So what I tell people is if you're not having a pr- problem with hypertension and you're outside a lot, then uh, it's okay to do that. You know, a lot of the uh, electrolyte replacement drinks will have that in them. They tend to have a little bit more sugar, uh, which you it, it helps you absorb uh, the, the sodium in those drinks. Uh, you can absorb a little bit more when sugar is present. But they have a little bit more than you need just because it tastes better. Um, so there's there that's perfectly fine, particularly if you're going to be outside and live in the South. Um, so that's that's certainly okay to do, Mikey. I think that's not going to harm anything. Now, if you had high blood pressure and it was uncontrolled, that'd be something that's a little bit different. But um, that that should be fine if you want to do that. Okay. Well, I don't even drink sodas, so um, and I don't add salt to anything, so. I think I'm okay. Yeah, you, Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you're living pretty healthy to me. <laughs> I'm feeling very feisty. <laughs> good, good. Take care. All right. Thank you, doctor. You, all right, you take care, too. Let's go to James in Jackson. Good morning, James. Good morning. I was wondering, uh, I work in healthcare with a lot of uh, men who are sexually active with other men. And one of the things that's brought up a lot is the amount, how it affects the health in terms of, I guess, douching or using water to kind of clean out the um, colon and, and rectum and things prior in relation to their sex. And so, but I've heard mixed reviews on what is healthy or unhealthy in terms of its effect on the colon. So I was just trying to get some more information about that. Yeah, so so that can certainly uh, those are certainly issues that men who have sex with men uh, need to know about and need to uh, you know make sure that they're taking care of themselves, not uh, uh, ignoring uh, you know some of the the uh, other risk factors or things that can happen. So uh, you, you want to be careful about what you're using. So the things that you would normally use for a colon cleanse out uh, is is usually the same kind of things that you would use. And a lot of people would use other substances, but, you know, a colonoscopy type thing or a, an enema, excuse me, an enema would be something that, that certainly you could use safely in the rectum uh, to clean out any fecal material. There are some other things, though, that you need to, to make sure that they're uh, paying attention to. Uh, I would, here's what I would do. I would make sure that your physician is comfortable uh, uh, having uh, patients uh has other patients who are men who are having sex with men 
and then that they know about some of the other risk factors that are there. Certainly, it's not just the risk factors that you mentioned. There's some others, too, that they need to be screening for, not just once, but continually and addressing those in a way uh, that is understandable and certainly that uh, that can help prevent some of the other things. So that's the main thing I would do. Sometimes those are infectious disease specialists or there might even be clinics uh, for, you know, it, here at UMMC, we do have uh, uh, clinics that are especially for uh, LGBT clinics or other clinics that really look at those issues in a uh, very specific way so that we can uh, help out patients to make sure that they're taking care of themselves. So, um, you know, as far as, as what types of things to use, again, things that could uh, are enemas that are designed for the colon itself are probably okay to use uh, for uh, evacuating fecal material from the rectum, but you still need to be careful with that. And I would go ahead and, you know, if you don't have a physician that really uh, is comfortable doing that or talking about those kinds of issues, find you somebody again, infectious disease, or if you just Google LGBTQ clinic, uh, you know, you'll find a couple of those uh, around. And you may not have to go to those uh, frequently, maybe once a year even, but that's probably a good idea just to make sure that you're addressing those uh, uh, individual healthcare needs that you have. All right, did we lose James? I think we did. Okay, all right. Uh, a couple more minutes here. I'm going to touch back on our top 10 list and just uh, pick out one more thing. Uh, we have a couple of more minutes here. Uh, we talked about the thyroid issues, hypertension issues, um, lipid issues. Diabetes is probably another one that particularly in our state is one that uh, affects us uh, disproportionately. If you look at everybody in the United States, about 34 million people will have diabetes. That's type 1 diabetes, which means the pancreas is not producing enough insulin. And then type 2 diabetes, it's producing enough insulin, but there is resistance to how that insulin is working. So that's about 1 in 10 people. And again, in Mississippi, we certainly have more uh, diabetic patients in our state than certainly other states. And the whole reason that we, you know, there's lots of different things that diabetes can affect. Certainly our heart, our brain, our kidneys it's one of the leading causes of damage to all three of those organs and of course eyesight as well uh, but it is one that really is a is a hard one to deal with again a lot of people wouldn't have a lot of symptoms there's certainly more symptoms that are associated with diabetes than there are hypertension uh, but you really need to have it under control some people uh, don't feel when their blood sugar is high and uncontrolled they may say hey i'm doing okay i'm taking my medication i'm feeling all right but they could continually be doing damage to their organs. So something that you need to be screened for, particularly if you have a family history of diabetes uh, in, in certain groups, Hispanic groups, uh, black Americans, uh, all of those groups can, uh, can have more um, type two diabetes in particular uh, that you need to get looked at. The other thing is making sure that you're seeing other people if you have diabetes. So if you're a physician, hasn't talked to you about uh, or hasn't looked at your feet to make sure that you're not having any calluses formed or other problems with your feet uh, and your eyesight. So you need to be seeing uh, a podiatrist probably at least once a year in a preventive manner and then also to take care of your eyesight and try to prevent some of the things like neovascularization in the eye that you can get from diabetes. You need to see an ophthalmologist 
at least once a year. Not a, just an optometrist, but an ophthalmologist because they need to be doing a special type of eye exam. So keep that in mind as you're uh, going to your physician. And if you think you may have some symptoms of any of those things, let them know. That the first thing that you can do is to let them know so that they can investigate further. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org.